Section 22 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 9, Part 2, Through European Turkey. On Sunday, July 12th, in company with an Englishman in the Turkish artillery service, I paid my first visit to Asian soil, taking a kike across the Bosphorus to Kadikoi, one of the many delightful seaside resorts within easy distance of Constantinople. Many objects of interest are pointed out as propelled by a couple of swarthy, half-naked kaike jees. The sharp-proud kaike gallantly rides the blue waves of this loveliest of all pieces of land environed water. More than once I have noticed that a firm belief in the supernatural has an abiding hold upon the average Turkish mind, having frequently, during my usual evening promenade through the Galata streets, noted the expression of deep and genuine earnestness upon the countenances of fez-crowned citizens giving respectful audience to Arab fortune-tellers, paying twenty para pieces for the revelations he is favouring them with, and handing over the coins with the business-like air of people satisfied that they are getting its full equivalent. Consequently, I am not much astonished when, rounding Seraglio Point, my companion calls my attention to several sections of whalebone suspended on the wall facing the water, and tells me that they are placed there by the fishermen, who believe them to be a talisman of no small efficacy in keeping the Bosphorus well supplied with fish. They, firmly adhering to the story that once, when the bones were removed, the fish nearly all disappeared. The oars used by the Kaikjis are of quite a peculiar shape. The oar shaft immediately next the handhold swells into a bulbous affair for the next eighteen inches, which is at least four times the circumference of the remainder, and the end of the oar blade is for some reason made swallow-tailed. The object of the enlarged portion, which of course comes inside the rowlocks, appears to be the double purpose of balancing the weight of the longer portion outside, and also for preventing the oar at all times from escaping into the water. The rowlock is simply a rawhide loop, kept well greased, and as, toward the end of every stroke, the G leans back to his work, the oar slips several inches, causing a considerable loss of power. The day is warm, the broiling sun shines directly down on the bare heads of the Kaikjis, and causes the perspiration to roll off their swarthy faces in large beads, but they lay back to their work manfully although from early morning until cannon-roar at eight p.m. neither bite nor sup nor even so much water as to moisten the end of their parched tongues will pass their lips. For, although but poor, hard-working Kaikjis, they are true Mussulmans. Pointing skyward from the summit of the hill, back of Seraglio Point, are the four tapering minarets of the world-renowned St. Sophia Mosque, and a little farther to the left is the Sultana Ahmet Mosque the only mosque in all Mohammedanism with six minarets. Nearby is the old Seraglio Palace, or rather what is left of it, built by Mohammed II in 1469 out of materials from the ancient Byzantine palaces, and in a department of which the Sanjiak Sharif, holy standard, Borda-i-Sharif, holy mantle, and other venerated relics of the Prophet Mohammed are preserved. To this place, on the 15th of Ramadan, the sultan and leading dignitaries of the empire repair to do homage to the holy relics, upon which it would be the highest sacrilege for Christian eyes to gaze. The hem of this holy mantle is reverently kissed by the sultan and the few leading personages present, 
after which the spot thus brought in contact with human lips is carefully wiped with an embroidered napkin dipped in a golden basin of water the water used in this ceremony is then supposed to be of priceless value as a purifier of sin and is carefully preserved and corked up in tiny phials is distributed among the sultanas grand dignitaries and prominent people of the realm who in return make valuable presents to the lucky messengers and mussulman ecclesiastics employed in its distribution this precious liquid is doled out drop by drop as though it were nectar of eternal life received direct from heaven and mixed with other water is drunk immediately upon breaking fast each evening during the remaining fifteen days of ramadan arriving at kadikoi the opportunity presents of observing something of the high-handed manner in which turkish pashas are wont to expect from inferiors their every whim obeyed we meet a friend of my companion a pasha who for the remainder of the afternoon makes one of our company unfortunately for a few other persons the pasha is in a whimsical mood to-day and inclined to display for our benefit rather arbitrary authority toward others the first individual coming under his immediate notice is a young man torturing a harp summoning the musician the pasha summarily orders him to play yankee doodle the writer arrived in constantinople with the full impression that it was the mosque of st sophia that has the famous six minarets having i am quite sure seen it thus quite frequently accredited in print and i mention this especially in order that readers who may have been similarly misinformed may know that the above account is the correct one does not know it and humbly begs the pasha to name something more familiar yankee doodle replies the pasha peremptorily the poor man looks as though he would willingly relinquish all hopes of the future if only some present avenue of escape would offer itself but nothing of the kind seems at all likely the musician appeals to my turkish-speaking friend and begs him to request me to favor him with the tune i am of course only too glad to help him stem the rising tide of the pasha's wrath by whistling the tune for him and after a certain amount of preliminary twanging he strikes up and manages to blunder through yankee doodle the pasha after ascertaining from me that the performance is creditable considering the circumstances forthwith hands him more money than he would collect among the poorer patrons of the place in two hours soon a company of five strolling acrobats and conjurers happens along and these likewise are summoned into the presence and ordered to proceed many of the conjurers tricks are quite creditable performances but the pasha occasionally interferes in the proceedings just in the nick of time to prevent the prestidigitator finishing his manipulations much to the pasha's delight once however he cleverly manages to hoodwink the pasha and executes his trick in spite of the latter's interference which so amuses the pasha that he straightway gives him a majedi our return boat to galata starts at seven o'clock and it is a ten minutes drive down to the landing at fifteen minutes to seven the pasha calls for a public carriage to take us down to the steamer there are no carriages pasha effendi those three are all engaged by ladies and gentlemen in the garden exclaims the waiter respectfully engaged or not engaged i want that open carriage yonder replies the pasha authoritatively and already beginning to show signs of impatience Boxhana, hi you there drive around here addressing the driver the driver enters a plea of being already engaged the pasha's temper rises to the point of threatening to throw carriage horses and driver into the bosphorus if his demands are not instantly complied with finally the driver and everybody else interested collapse completely and entering the carriage we are driven to our destination without another murmur subsequently i learned that a government officer whether a pasha or of lower rank has the power of taking arbitrary possession of a public conveyance over the head of a civilian 
so that our pasha was, after all, only sticking up for the rights of himself and my friend of the artillery, who likewise wears the mark by which a military man is, in Turkey, always distinguishable from a civilian, a longer string to the tassel of his fez. This is the last day of Ramadan, and the following Monday ushers in the three days' feast of Biaram, which is, in substance, a kind of general carousal to compensate for the rigid self-denial of the thirty days' fasting and prayer just ended. The government offices and works are still closed, everybody is wearing new clothes, and holiday-making engrosses the public attention. A friend proposes a trip on a Bosphorus steamer up as far as the entrance to the Black Sea. The steamers are profusely decorated with gay-colored flags, and at certain hours all warships anchored in the Bosphorus as well as the forts and arsenals fire salutes, the roar and rattle of the great guns echoing among the hills of Europe and Asia, that here confront each other, with but a thousand yards of dancing blue waters between them. All along either lovely shore, villages and splendid country seats of wealthy pashas and Constantinople merchants dot the verdure-clad slopes. Two white marble kiosks of the Sultan are pointed out. The old castles of Europe and Asia face each other on opposite sides of the narrow channel. They were famous fortresses in their day, but save as interesting relics of a bygone age, they are no longer of any use. At Therapia are the summer residences of the different ambassadors, the English and the French the most conspicuous. The extensive grounds of the former are most beautifully terraced, and evidently fit for the residence of royalty itself. Happy indeed is the Constantinopolitan, whose income commands a summer villa in Therapia, or at any of the many desirable locations in plain view within this earthly paradise of blue waves and sunny slopes, and a yacht in which to wing his flight whenever and wherever fancy bids him go. In the glitter and glare of the midday sun the scene along the Bosphorus is lovely, yet its loveliness is plainly of the earth, but as we return cityward in the eventide the dusky shadows of the gloaming settle over everything. As we gradually approach the city seems half hidden behind a vaporous veil, as though in imitation of thousands of its fair occupants it were hiding its comeliness behind the yashmak the scores of tapering minarets and the towers and the masts of the crowded shipping of all nations rise above the mist and line with delicate tracery the western sky already painted in richest colors by the setting sun on saturday morning july eighteenth the sound of martial music announces the arrival of the soldiers from stamboul to guard the streets through which the sultan will pass on his way to a certain mosque to perform some ceremony in connection with the feast just over at the designated place I find the streets already lined with Circassian cavalry and Ethiopian zouaves, the latter in red and blue zouave costumes and immense turbans. Mounted gendarmes are driving civilians about, first in one direction and then in another, to try and get the streets cleared, occasionally fetching some unlucky white in the threadbare shirt of the galata plebe, a stinging cut across the shoulders with short rawhide whips a glaring injustice that elicits not the slightest adverse criticism from the spectators, and nothing but silent contortions of face and body from the individual receiving the attention. I finally obtain a good place, where nothing but an open plank fence and a narrow plot of ground, thinly set with shrubbery, intervenes between me and the street leading from the palace. In a few minutes the approach of the sultan is announced by the appearance of half a dozen Circassian outriders, who dash wildly down the streets, one behind the other, mounted on splendid dapple-gray chargers. Then come four close carriages containing the sultan's mother and leading ladies of the imperial harem, 
and a minute later appears a mounted guard, two abreast, keen-eyed fellows riding slowly, and critically eyeing everybody and everything as they proceed. Behind them comes a gorgeously arrayed individual in a perfect blaze of gold braid and decorations, and close behind him follows the sultan's carriage, surrounded by a small crowd of pedestrians and horsemen, who buzz around the imperial carriage like bees near a hive, the pedestrians especially dodging about hither and thither, hopping nimbly over fences, crossing gardens, etc., keeping pace with the carriage meanwhile as though determined upon ferreting out and destroying anything in the shape of danger that may possibly be lurking along the route. My object of seeing the sultan's face is gained, but it is only a momentary glimpse, for besides the horsemen flitting around the carriage, an officer suddenly appears in front of my position, and unrolls a broad scroll of paper with something printed on it, which he holds up. Whatever the scroll is, or the object of its display may be, the sultan bows his acknowledgments, either to the scroll or to the officer holding it up. Ere I am in the Ottoman capital a week, I have the opportunity of witnessing a fire, and the workings of the Constantinople Fire Department. While walking along Tramway Street, a hue and cry of Yangunvar, Yangunvar, there is fire, there is fire, is raised, and three barefooted men, dressed in the scantiest linen clothes, come charging pell-mell through the crowded streets, flourishing long brass hose-nozzles to clear the way. Behind them comes a crowd of about twenty others, similarly dressed, four of whom are bearing on their shoulders a primitive wooden pump, while others are carrying leathern water-buckets. They are trotting along at quite a lively pace, shouting and making much unnecessary commotion, and lastly comes their chief on horseback, cantering close at their heels, as though to keep the men well up to their pace. The crowds of pedestrians, who refrained from following after the firemen, and who scurried for the sidewalks at their approach, now resume their place in the middle of the street, but again the wild cry of Yangunvar resounds along the narrow street and the same scene of citizens scuttling to the sidewalks and a hurrying friar brigade followed by a noisy crowd of gamins is enacted over again as another and yet another of these primitive organizations go scooting swiftly past it is said that these nimble-footed firemen do almost miraculous work considering the material they have at command an assertion which i think is not at all unlikely but the wonder is that the destructive fires are not much more frequent when the fire department is evidently so inefficient in addition to the regular police force and fire department there is a system of night watchmen, called Bekjis, who walk their respective beats throughout the night, carrying staves heavily shod with iron, with which they pound the flagstones with a resounding thwack. Owing to the hilliness of the city and the roughness of the streets, much of the carrying business of the city is done by Hamals, a class of sturdy-limbed men who, I am told, are mostly Armenians. They wear a sort of pack-saddle, and carry loads the mere sight of which makes the average westerner groan. For carrying such trifles as crates and hogsheads of crockery and glassware, and puncheons of rum, four hamels join strength at the ends of two stout poles. Scarcely less marvellous than the weights they carry is the apparent ease with which they balanced the tremendous loads, piled high up above them, it being no infrequent sight to see a stalwart hamel with a veritable Saratoga trunk for size, on his back, with several smaller trunks and valises piled above it, making his way down Step Street, which is as much as many pedestrians can do to descend without carrying anything. One of these hamals, meandering along the street with six or seven hundred pounds of merchandise on his back, has the legal right, to say nothing of the evident moral right, to knock over any unloaded citizen who too tardily yields the way. 
from observations made on the spot one cannot help thinking that there is no law in any country to be compared to this one for simon pure justice between man and man these are most assuredly the strongest backed and hardest working men i have seen anywhere they are remarkably trustworthy and sure-footed and their chief ambition i am told is to save sufficient money to return to the mountains and valleys of their native armenia where most of them have wives patiently awaiting their coming and purchase a piece of land upon which to spend their declining years in ease and independence far different is the daily lot of another habitue of the streets of this busy capital large pugnacious-looking rams that occupy pretty much the same position in turkish sporting circles that thoroughbred bulldogs do in england being kept by young turks solely on account of their combative propensities and the facilities thereby afforded for gambling on the prowess of their favorite animals at all hours of the day and evening the constantinople sport may be met on the streets leading his woolly pet tenderly with a string often carrying something in his hand to coax the ram along the wool of these animals is frequently clipped to give them a fanciful aspect the favorite clip being to produce a lion-like appearance and they are always carefully guarded against the fell influence of the evil eye by a circlet of blue beads and pendant charms suspended from the neck this latter precautionary measure is not confined to these hard-headed contestants of for the championship of galata para and stamboul however but grace the necks of a goodly proportion of all animals met on the streets notably the saddle ponies whose services are offered on certain street corners to the public occasionally one notices among the busy throngs a person wearing a turban of dark green this distinguishing mark being the sole privilege of persons who have made the pilgrimage to mecca all true mussulmans are supposed to make this pilgrimage some time during their lives either in person or by employing a substitute to go in their stead wealthy pashas sometimes paying quite large sums to some imam or other holy person to go as their proxy for the holier the substitute the greater is supposed to be the benefit to the person sending him other persons are seen with turbans of a lighter shade of green than the returned mecca pilgrims these are people related in some way to the reigning sovereign constantinople has its peculiar attractions at the great centre of the mohammedan world as represented in the person of the sultan and during the five hundred years of the ottoman dominion here almost every sultan and great personage has left behind some interesting reminder of the times in which he lived and the wonderful possibilities of unlimited wealth and power a stranger will scarcely show himself upon the streets ere he is discovered and accosted by a guide from long experience these men can readily distinguish a new arrival and they seldom make a mistake regarding his nationality their usual mode of self-introduction is to approach him and ask if he is looking for the american consulate or the english post-office as the case may be and if the stranger replies in the affirmative to offer to show the way nothing is mentioned about charges and the uninitiated new arrival naturally wonders what kind of a place he has got into when upon offering what his experience in western countries has taught him to consider a most liberal recompense the guide shrugs his shoulders and tells you that he had guided a gentleman the same distance yesterday and the gentleman gave usually about double what you are offering no matter whether it be one cherik or half a dozen an afternoon ramble with a guide through stamboul embraces the museum of antiquities the saint sophia mosque the costume museum the thousand and one columns the tomb of sultan mahmoud the world-renowned stamboul bazaar the pigeon mosque the saraka tower and the tomb of sultan suleiman i passing over the museum of antiquities which to the average observer is very similar to a dozen other institutions of the kind the visitor very naturally approaches the portals of the saint sophia mosque with expectations enlivened by having already read wondrous accounts of its magnificence and unapproachable grandeur but 
Let one's fancy riot as it will, there is small fear of being disappointed in the finest mosque in Constantinople. At the door one either has to take off his shoes and go inside in stocking feet, or, in addition to the entrance fee of two cheriks, bakshish the attendant for the use of a pair of overslippers. People with holes in their socks, and young men wearing boots three sizes too small, are the legitimate prey of the slipper-man, since the average human would yield up almost his last piaster rather than promenade around in St. Sophia with his big toe protruding through his footgear like a mud-turtle's head, or run the risk of having to be hauled barefoot to his hotel in a hack, from the impossibility of putting his boots on again. Devout Mussulmans are bowing their foreheads down to the mat-covered floor in a dozen different parts of the mosque as we enter. Tired-looking pilgrims from a distance are curled up in cool corners, happy in the privilege of peacefully slumbering in the holy atmosphere of the great edifice they have perhaps travelled hundreds of miles to see. A dozen half-naked youngsters are clambering about the railings and otherwise disporting themselves after the manner of unrestrained juveniles everywhere, free to gamble about to their heart's content, providing they abstain from making a noise that would interfere with devotions. Upon the marvellous mosaic ceiling of the great dome is a figure of the Virgin Mary, which the Turks have frequently tried to cover up by painting it over, but paint as often as they will the figure will not be concealed. On one of the upper galleries are the gate of heaven and the gate of hell, the former of which the Turks once tried their best to destroy, but every arm that ventured to raise a tool against it instantly became paralyzed, when the would-be destroyers naturally gave up the job. In giving the readers these facts, I earnestly request them not to credit them to my personal account, for although earnestly believed in by a certain class of Christian natives here, I would prefer the responsibility for their truthfulness to rest on the broad shoulders of tradition rather than on mine. The Turks never call the attention of visitors to these reminders of the religion of the infidels who built the structure, at such an enormous outlay of money and labor, little dreaming that it would become one of the chief glories of the Mohammedan world but the doorkeeper who follows visitors around never neglects to point out the shape of a human hand on the wall, too high up to be closely examined, and volunteer the intelligence that it is the imprint of the hand of the first sultan who visited the mosque after the occupation of Constantinople by the Osmanlis. Perhaps, however, the Mussulman, in thus discriminating between the traditions of the Greek residents and the alleged handmark of the first sultan, is actuated by a laudable desire to be truthful so far as possible for there is nothing improbable about the story of the handmark, inasmuch as a hole chipped in the masonry, an application of cement, and a pressure of the sultan's hand against it before it hardened, give at once something for visitors to look at through future centuries, and shake their heads incredulously about. Not the least of the attractions are two monster wax candles, which, notwithstanding their lighting up at innumerable fasts and feasts, for the guide does not know how many years past, are still eight feet long by four in circumference, but more wonderful than the monster wax candles, the brass tomb of Constantine's daughter, set in the wall over one of the massive doors, the sultan's handmark, the figure of the Virgin Mary, and the green columns brought from Baalbek, above everything else is the wonderful mosaic work. The mighty dome and the whole vast ceiling are mosaic work in which tiny squares of blue, green, and gold crystal are made to work out patterns. The squares used are tiny particles having not over a quarter-inch surface, and the amount of labor and the expense in covering the vast ceiling of this tremendous structure with incomputable myriads of these small particles fairly stagger any attempt at comprehension. End of section 22